Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. My guest today is Tom Breslin, associate at the Philadelphia location of Boland Swinsky Jackson. I did it. I said it right. Tom brings over 20 years experience to the firm. He has contributed to many significant university, institutional, and cultural projects ranging from campus master plans to delicate insertions into historic structures. Those are always fun. In addition to a lifelong interest in the environment and sustainable design, he has a particular focus on the user experience of place and the nature of materials. The project we are going to chat about today is Malakowski Hall for Data Science and Information Technology at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Malakowski Hall is a 265,000-square-foot, seven-story, multidisciplinary academic building. This building will connect students and researchers from across disciplines and create a hub for advances in computing, communication, and cyber technologies. I think that's the first time I've heard that term be used in relation to design. The signature design element of the building is the prefabricated exterior wall panel assembly. The assembly has custom-designed and shop structural and aluminum plate cladding panels, big sentence, and electrochromatic glazing for solar and glare control. Why don't you tell me, what is, what is the story, the history, the goals, the aspirations behind this project? This building is really about collaboration. It's a new program that the university is putting together that is about data science. So they're bringing together departments from multiple colleges, engineering, medicine, and pharmacy. They're taking the sort of more data-driven departments, pulling them out of where they are now, and putting them in this big incubator building. 
to try to create cross-discipline collaboration. I think that is a big thing in newly conceived office spaces, that it's about creating places where people bump into each other, there's unplanned discussions, and that sparks new ideas. That is basically what this building is about from a programmatic perspective. The way that that has manifested itself in architecture is it's a very large building. You said it's 265,000 square feet. In order to make that manageable, the interior of the building has a large collaborative spine, which is a, it's not from a code perspective, an atrium because it's broken down, but until everything closes off in a smoke event, it's one big open space with monumental stairs that go up to the entire space to create this spine that organizes the building and creates spaces where people can interact with each other in formal or informal ways to try to you know create this collaboration. As far as the expression of the building from the exterior, we got very clear direction from the university and the donor that the building was meant to be iconic. The University of Florida's, the historic core is pre-war brick, uh, university Gothic, smaller scale. And then this building is sited just south of the university core um, in an area that was developed post-war. It's got a lot of sort of small, modest brick buildings. They don't say cutting edge data science. Right. So <laughs> what we were hearing from the university was this building needs to say this is at the the cutting edge of information technology, and that needs to be explicit on the exterior. So that is really what the exterior is about. It's a it's very different from its you know small scale brick neighbors. Well, I I, I went and trolled the building, and it definitely screams exactly that. As you were describing you know, the buildings around it. I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> I looked at this building that one of these things is not like the others, but, but now that makes total sense exactly why it isn't. Um, I wish they would make some university buildings like that for our industry, put all the architecture, engineering and construction students all in one building. It'd be interesting to see how that all, all came down the pipe. The University of Florida's architecture department is actually in with their construction management department. So they actually, yeah, they actually do have, maybe that's the thing University of Florida does, but it is interesting that the, uh, the construction manager people are, they're in a, they're in a different building, but they're in the same college. And there's a lot of interaction between the architects and the construction management people. We could use more of that. We could use more of that just in our industry. Period. Um, so this building, okay, this is a super cool looking building. Thank you. I, I, I don't even, I was trying to come up with some great little catchphrase about what this building looks like. And I, I was just lost. I don't know how to describe it except for very modern, very shiny. Talk to me a little bit about the design of this building and, and some of the specifics. And I want all the dirt, all the dirt, all the good stuff. What was easy and hard to design? How, you know, what products did you choose for this building and, and why did you choose them? And I know one specifically I looked at that if you don't say it, I'll cue you for it. But so tell me about this building. I think the first thing you notice when you see the building are the strong diagonals that are sort of arrayed across the facade. As we had talked about, the, the building is much larger than its neighbors. And initial studies we were using what you consider to be normal rectilinear forms. And you could sort of read each floor level 
and the sense of scale seemed sort of overwhelming. So we started moving kind of slowly at first into a direction to introduce diagonals to minimize the strong readings of verticals and horizontals. And it seemed to get more and more successful. The sort of more we hid the verticals and horizontals to the point where the windows themselves are trapezoidal. And there are very few clear readings of where floor lines are. So the building is, it sort of aspires to be without a specific scale to the point where, as part of the design process, we created a mock-up, which we shared with other people in the firm. And you could actually see photos of us in front of the mock-up. And the people thought that the windows, which are typically you know six, seven feet tall, they thought they were little airline windows because they had just seen the renderings and the building is so um, the scale is indeterminate enough that they thought that the building was maybe a quarter of the size that it actually is. The way that we achieved all of those diagonals was with a prefabricated wall system. We knew relatively early in order to meet the budget and particularly the schedule, university projects typically have a really hard stop because they are scheduling classes that need to occur in this building and it's sort of non-negotiable. So we needed to buy ourselves some time in getting the building weathered in. And the best way to do that is with a prefabricated wall system. Just before I came onto this project, I had done a project at the University of Pennsylvania that was a uh, 450 bed dormitory uh, residence hall that was prefabricated. So we were sort of just coming off a successful prefabricated building and felt like with this sort of big rectilinear form that we needed to clad, that doing it with a prefabricated wall system would work. For the listeners, go look at this building, because I can't even imagine the detailing and, and, and how you made, it's just so unique, how you made these windows and that cladding come together. It's just kind of blowing my mind a little bit. I'm very pleased to hear you say that, because that is sort of the magic of it, is that the system itself is incredibly simple. The backup system that clads the building, the structure of it, the insulation, the air vapor barrier, all of that technical stuff is about as simple as you could get. It really is just the finished pans that are mounted to it is sort of where all the complexity is. It's a rain screen system, so they're just simply sort of hung on the building. A rain screen is an exterior wall detail where the wall cladding stands off from the moisture-resistant surface of an air and water barrier to create a capillary break and to allow drainage and evaporation. An enormous amount of work went into the exact geometry of them and, you know, when you get to the perimeter and the corners, things get complicated. But the system itself is extremely simple, which in order to make a building that performs well and is tight... You want it to be as simple as you can get it so that it's achievable and affordable. Okay, first rabbit hole. So these, these, I think you call them pans, hang on the outside of the building. If I'm not mistaken, Florida is hurricane country. Gainesville is actually not in the sort of Miami-Dade super-duper high-velocity hurricane zone. The winds are higher than they are here in Philadelphia in many other places, but it's not super, you know, highly restrictive hurricane conditions. So you didn't have to meet any special requirements? 
One of the things that was new to me, this is the first project that I've done in Florida, is that Florida has a program called the Florida Product Approval, where any exterior system that you use has to go through, undergo the special testing, or you can get engineering judgments for it. But one of the end products of the design assist that we went through was the full engineering report to be given to the authority having jurisdiction that shows that it meets the requirements of Florida product approval. Ah, that's a, that's the first time I've heard that one. What is what exactly is this cladding made of? What what material is it, or what is it? A particular product it is one eighth inch aluminum plate. Okay, it's just stock plate that the fabricator NRG out of Apopka are just taking flat sheets. And after much discussion and design, they're basically just putting on a CNC router and routing out a single sheet, sort of back routing it so that they can fold it in a press to give the sort of triangular forms. So did you guys actually design each of these pans as well? Because there's different ones. Some have windows in them, some don't. There's a single typical pan geometry that was the sort of genesis of everything. And then we basically just mirror it and flip it. Okay. I can see that now that you're saying that looking at this picture. And then the windows themselves were a bit of a trick because as we mentioned before, there are multiple departments that are occupying this building and we're designing the interior and the exterior at the same time. So as we're designing the exterior rooms are moving around, entire departments are shifting So the exact location of where a window needs to be, what is an office, what is a conference room, what is a large-scale group office, is constantly shifting. So one of the reasons that we developed a facade the way that we did was that we could simply sort of turn panes either opaque or put a window in them as needed. And we would periodically let, you know, the interior dictate where a window was going to be. And then we would get to a point, we would step back, look at the facade, and see if there were big clusters of windows over here and then big areas of opaque over there. And then we would sort of negotiate (laughs) as to, can we put this window over here? And we would sort of reallocate. There was originally a sort of method to the madness as to how the windows were um, spaced on the building, but we didn't want it to be a specific pattern anyway. So we started with an initial spacing and then let the program finally dictate where the windows ended up. My very first architecture firm that I was at for 22 years, we did exclusively schools. So I have done a ton of schoolwork in my career. And so I know that historically, not good, bad, or otherwise, there are more cooks in the kitchen when you're working on whether it's a K through 12 or a university level project. You've got school boards, you've got committees, I can just see the process and getting, you know, getting that all worked out and wait, we want to move this space over here. Is there, you know, working out the details of their program? Yeah, we've, we found an effective way of dealing with that was to create a system that was as flexible as possible so that the architecture wasn't telling them yes or no, that we could say, yes, we can do that. And then it would be reflected in the architecture in a way that didn't compromise the design. It just became baked into the design with that level of flexibility. And this is just genius. It really is. I am like, 
I, I mean, I don't gush about a whole lot of things, but I am seriously impressed with this. Okay, I, I'll make you stop talking about that specific thing for a moment. Tell me about this monochromatic skin, because all I could think about is, oh, I love glitter. <laughs> tell, tell me about what you went through. You said you worked closely with PPG mm-hmm. to get this, and you're the second architect that I've interviewed for this podcast that really went through some... Um, a process to get a color or a coating just the way they wanted it. So tell me about this one. So we knew just from our initial studies, the renderings, the way that we wanted the building to feel, that we wanted it to be silver in color and a really, really neutral silver. So we contacted PPG. We, at this point, we knew that it was going to be aluminum plate, so that it was going to be a painted finish. It wasn't going to be an ACM with a coil coat kind of finish. It was going to be a painted finish. Our initial concept was that it was going to be aluminum composite material, just because we thought that was what we could afford. And then that was what a prefabricator was going to want to use. So when we were going into the design assist process, we just kind of threw in an alternate to do aluminum plate because we thought that would be a better finished product. The concern that we had about ACM is that a typical ACM panel can only come 62 inches wide. And we knew that our finished panes were wider than that. So by the time you're done with the folding and the bending, we were going to have additional joints that were going to create secondary patterns on the facade that we didn't like. So when we were interviewing NRG, who ended up being our fabricator, they were extremely comfortable using aluminum plate and actually recommended it. And we jumped right on that because we knew that that was going to be a solution to one of the major concerns we had about the facade. A quick note on the difference between aluminum composite panel and aluminum plate. Aluminum plate is very much as it sounds, sheets rolled from high purity aluminum. Lightweight and easy to shape, it gives a beautiful look with the high durability and flexibility that comes to mind when we think of aluminum cladding. An aluminum composite panel, also referred to as ACP, is a different beast entirely, although it might be hard to tell when looking at the raw product. The composite panel is lightweight and easy to shape. It is a true composite with a high-purity aluminum alloy panel at the top and bottom and a non-toxic, low-density polyethylene core panel sandwiched in the middle, and then a protective film applied to the front. The applications can be similar for both ACP and aluminum plate, but in some cases, ACP might have more options for coating and selection. So we just asked them for a range of their sort of standard-ish. PPG has hundreds of thousands of colors, so there truly isn't really a standard, but a range of silvers. And we determined pretty quickly that when you're looking at metallic silvers, very few of them are really truly neutral. If you stare at them long enough, you start to see blue and you start to see brown and you start to see green. So we got numerous samples, which we we narrowed down to a few that we liked. And then we were really focused on specifically the reflectivity of it. So the main facade of this building faces north, but the broadsides are north and south. So we wanted it to have life they're catching color and they're light and dark is shifting, even though you only have a single color of paint. So that effect is amplified if there is some sort of metallic flake in the paint. So we really wanted that on the North side. You're emphasizing the folds that we're, you know, trying so hard to, to manufacture here. 
At the same time, we're in the strong flared sun. On the south side, we don't want to create a super bright facade that is going to be blinding the people in buildings to the south. People approaching the building. So we were really trying to sort of thread the needle between picking a color with just enough reflectance that it has interest from the north, but is not creating a glare condition from the south. So it is the same color all the way around. We have yeah, we have a single color that is working all four facades. The way that we really confirmed that was there is a mock-up that was built that is uh, each pan is seven and a half feet tall, six feet wide. So it's three of those tall. So it's twenty-two feet tall. That is facing south because that was our major concern. So as part of the sort of confirmation for the fabricator to be able to build and install the thing, they built this mock-up, and we built it with three different colors. That, if you look at the photos, it all looks like it's one, but they're actually three different colors with three different amounts of metallic flake in them, so that we could really dial in and have a level of confidence that in the south-facing condition, it wasn't going to create glare. So I have to ask this because architects kind of crack me up in this department, but how many rounds of mixing and doing whatever it is they do with these colors to get them where you want them? How many did you go through before you said, yeah, that's the one? I think the initial number of samples that we got was probably in the 20s that we narrowed down to three. And then we asked them to sort of split the difference between two of them. <laughs> and then with those three, those were the ones that were created for the mock-up. And then we picked the one from there. I think one of the single biggest things during my career, and I'm not an architect, but working with architects that it just felt like they could just never get happy with anything to do with color, except for one boss I had who was colorblind. And he loved to do all the colors of all the interiors on the building. It, to this day, <laughs> oh my God, there's some, there's some schools in a suburb out in Portland that are like, whoa, that's really orange. And he still did them. I'd be like, really? You're putting that purple with that orange? Yeah, it looks great. You're colorblind. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, though. Um, it, it all worked out. We have a joke in the office about BCJ Gray, where we just want everything to be gray. And <laughs> we, we can have hour-long debates about the specific nature of a specific gray. And even for this, with the three colors that we had the mock-up painted, everybody but us thought they were all the same color. And we're sitting here like moving around and seeing the reflectance and scrutinizing it. Everybody's looking at us like we're crazy because we're essentially debating what appears to them to be all the same color. Uh, yeah, definitely your architect is showing. <laughs> Another really big challenge that we had is the, the University of Florida has a mandate for bird-friendly glazing. Right, yeah, that's that's going on all over the country. And we, we've dealt with it at Penn. We're dealing with it at lots of buildings. The challenge that we found here, and I'm, I'm kind of astonished that it's an issue in the industry, is we were trying to balance um, the bird people want you to put ceramic frit on the first surface. But okay. in the United States, no manufacturer will actually warranty frit on the first surface. Apparently, they will in Canada. Toronto has um, a mandate that everything has to be fritted. So they will warranty it in Canada, but not the United States yet. 
it's important to reach people before they start designing the buildings. So architects are fundamental. We do work with engineers, facade consultants. I also do a lot of work with glass companies. We have a program for evaluating and rating glass um, in terms of how relatively bird-friendly it is. We're also trying to work with ABC's members, homeowners in general, uh, because almost half of collisions take place on homes. So at the one end of the scale, we're working with skyscrapers. At the other end of the scale, we're working you know, with you and your backyard. We spoke with Dr. Christine Shepard from the American Bird Conservancy to learn more about the problem of bird strikes and some of the things we can do in the design process to mitigate this issue. As many as a billion birds are killed every year colliding with windows and walls, glass windows and walls, which seems like an impossible number. But uh, when you think about all the different buildings and all the different pieces of glass, and any time glass and birds coincide, there can be a collision. You start to see how that number is possible. And the job of the collisions program is to reduce that number any way we can. Billions? Like billions with a B? Billion with a B. Sometimes we say hundreds of millions because billion is such a huge number. It's, it's important to, to realize that the way we see the world, the way birds see the world is different. So we've got you know eyes close together. We don't have a beak sticking out between our eyes. We see more or less the same thing with each eye, so we've got good 3D vision. But we tend to see the world as something that we're moving into, something that's in front of us. The birds we're talking about have eyes on the opposite sides of their head. So think about that. Try to imagine seeing a different thing with each eye. They use completely different mechanisms where we use depth perception to tell them you know, how far away they are from something or how quickly they're going to get there. So birds can see behind them and out to the side as well as to the front. So the world to them is something they're immersed in. And they may not be looking where they're going, especially if they think they're flying in an open habitat. So they're flying towards sky or they think sky, they're flying towards clouds. Whereas if they're flying towards a cluttered environment, if they're going to fly through a stand of trees, for example, they'll definitely be looking forward. So the other thing that's important to know is that birds know exactly how big their bodies are. They know how wide their wings are. They know what size space they can go into. So if you're trying to get a bird not to fly in a particular direction, What you want is for it to believe that there's a cluttered environment in front of it with spaces that it can't go through very easily. So this is what defines the visual markers that we put on glass, the spacing of the visual markers. It has to be the right dimension and spacing. It has to be something that birds can see. But there's dozens and dozens of ways to actually create that. And the birds don't care what the pattern looks like. They're only interested in the spaces. It really boils down to three strategies. Um, One is use less glass. Two, use glass that's behind sunshades um, and other structures. And three, use glass that has a signal to birds integrated into it. Now, in Florida, um, you can do a lot with sunshades of different varieties. But even an insect screen, if you're talking about a dorm, especially if the windows are going to be openable, Put the insect screen on the outside of the window. It's bird-friendly. That's all you have to do. So we couldn't put frit on the first surface. Bird frit is ineffective if you put it on the third surface. So it has to be on the second surface, which is where your low-E coating wants to be. So we ran energy models with low-E coating on the third surface, and it was the effect was profound. 
So there's only one man, one major manufacturer who will actually has the ability to put the frit and the low E coating on the same surface. So we were sort of locked in for all of our major curtain wall areas to a sing, single manufacturer, which uh, it seems like that is not viable for the future as you know, energy performance is always going to be of import. And as bird friendly glazing becomes more and more important. So can, can you tell me who that manufacturer is? It's Viracon. Okay. We talked to Vitro about it and they just said, we're, we're working on it, but we're not there yet. Well, maybe after this podcast, all of them will be there. Hopefully. <laughs> you never know. So tell me about something that went wrong or <sighs> wrong sounds so negative. I don't want to sound negative. Something that was outside of these pans, really challenging or something you learned from. I feel like we were able to avoid a lot of pitfalls for what appears to be a very complicated facade because of the whole design assist process. From right at the end of uh, design development, we started a design assist process with ourselves, our engineers, the construction manager, Ajax, and the fabricator, NRG. And we met every other week from August until. January, where we would work through every aspect of what this facade was going to be. And I learned an enormous amount doing that. As I said before, we had worked on a different panelized facade at the University of Pennsylvania. Overall concept is the same. I went into this project thinking we're going to do the same thing. A different fabricator with different capabilities in a different place wants to do things in a very different way. It's just as valid, but I don't think you could build the building that we're building without going through the design assist process because it's so incredibly specific. And to get the result in a way that is buildable, you really have to have that level of communication. It helps you avoid all those pitfalls. When we were done with the process, we essentially had in various forms of sketches, 80% 80% of the shop drawings complete. So imagine getting the shop drawings and you've already reviewed them with the person submitting them five different times. So it really eases the process on something that is fundamentally pretty complicated, but it's already all been discussed and agreed upon. And you're at that point, you're really just fixing things around the edges. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if we could just do all projects with all the major players on board from day one so we could just get everything right the first time or as close to right as it could be. I have to say, I've been really lucky. The last three major projects that I've worked on have all had a design assist. Um, This project, the one at Penn, we worked on a sort of a major curtain wall and canopy project on Park Avenue in New York. Um, And that was, that was very uh, aggressively expressive say. And that again is something that, the engineering of it, um, it's a, the engineering of it is so integral to the expression of it that it is not something that we possibly could have drawn and handed off to a fabricator. There's, there's absolutely no way. Um, but when you have the buy-in from the fabricator and installer from the beginning, I was actually there when it was being installed in the spring and it was, remarkable how smoothly and quickly this incredibly complicated thing went in place because they understood it. It 
it was it was half theirs. I mean, we we sort of did the sketches and then we worked through it together. They knew it from top to bottom and they were able to install it seamlessly. That's amazing. Um, one thing I, I keep looking back at this again, a little selfishly asking this question. So I, we all know that if you're going to have problems, are usually going to be as a result of transitions mm-hmm. or attachments. Number from the picture I happen to have open on my computer in front of me. What kind of roof do you have on this? PVC membrane. Were there issues in dealing um, or detailing your transitions and working out this whole exterior enclosure system? So the structure of the building is site cast concrete, which for a panelized building like this is ideal. You basically clip it back. The structure could handle what is a relatively lightweight facade. And there was very little discussion, even at the cantilevers, the actual connections are, it's the same way you connect a curtain wall into concrete where you put in a sort of a slotted recessed embed and then you have this sort of the corresponding pieces that build out from there and it's just hung off the edge of the slab. It's pretty simple. As far as the roofing goes, the way that the panels typically want to be mounted is the top of the structural backup panel is eight inches above top of slab so okay. that they, they can make the connections off the edge of slab as we were talking about. So we basically at the roof level kept the same eight inch dimension and then worked our roofing back from there. So it's a, it's essentially a sort of a gravel stop condition where the it's lightweight insulated concrete is the way that we're generating the slope on the roof. That comes in to the backside of the eight inch overrun. And then our blocking works from there with the gravel stop. It hasn't been installed yet, but it seems like a relatively simple way to achieve the clean look we were going for. How is construction going? They actually just topped out the concrete like a week or two ago. And the first of the structural backup panels are scheduled to go on in about a week or two. So it's a very exciting time. We we're going to be going down there in two weeks and ideally see the first of the panels go on. So after, you know, two years of thought and work on these, it's going to be extremely exciting to see them in place. Yeah. I mean, because you, you have this vision, but you don't really know how that's all going to come together until you get it there and start putting it together. I mean, mm-hmm. you might have some form of idea from, you know, materials you've looked at and everything, but I don't know if it looks anything like these pictures. That's going to be a pretty cool building. So looking back on your whole, everything you've gone through in design, if I called you tomorrow and said, a building's so cool, I want to design one like that, what would you do differently next time? A lot of the complication that we ran into had to do with the odd-shaped windows. We picked the odd-shaped windows because they fit the overall expression of the facade. And with the sort of secondary benefit that at night when the lights come on and you, the sun is no longer reflecting off of the pans, the geometry of the facade sort of still carries through. But making a window opening with a slope sill is really complicated. We had ended up having to use curtain wall because window manufacturers won't warranty a window that is taking all the water that hits a sill and running it down to a single corner. So all of those window openings have to be curtain wall. And then trying to make a roller shade that fits onto one of those windows (laughs) 
Yeah, exactly. It's extremely complicated. I mean, who would even, I wouldn't even think about that until you got there and it's like, oh, what do we do? We were dealing with multiple manufacturers trying to figure out how we were going to create roller shades, which we had a solution, but it was not necessarily an ideal solution. And then there also is an observatory just to the southwest of this building. And the people at the observatory became concerned that a building of this size was going to have light leakage at night, and it was going to affect their view of the sky. Right. So we got the um, the orders that we needed to be able to sort of darken this building on a moment's notice, which meant that all of the odd-shaped roller shades were now going to need to be motorized roller shades, which sort of ramped up the complexity of that. So that is actually one of the reasons that we ended up using the electrochromic glass is because we could now darken the windows without all of the complexity of cable stayed motorized roller shades. So electrochromic glass. So you don't have roller shades. We only do on the, the sort of typical rectilinear curtain wall areas, the sort of larger scale curtain wall areas, but all of the trapezoidal windows are all sage glass, the electrochromic glass. Interesting. So next time you would just do that with the glass, or would you not do the odd-shaped windows? Hmm, that's a good question. I, <laughs> I think I think my answer is I would look a little harder at options that don't have odd-shaped windows. I can assure you that I would not try to create a inverted motorized trapezoidal roller shade. <laughs> <laughs> so Tom, because I'm a spec writer, I have to ask you. Because I love, I love some of the answers I hear to this question. What needs to be greatly improved in our contract documents? An issue that I see all the time is that the younger staff who are primarily drawing the documents, they don't know what the spec does. They don't know what it's for. It's the big book with all the words in it, but they don't see the connection between the drawings and the spec. The drawings are half of the contract documents. The spec is the entire other half. And your drawings are much more effective when they are integrated with the spec. And you end up having to draw less when you understand what the spec does. So I'm, I'm constantly telling people, like trying to explain to them, this is what the spec is for. The spec is your friend. Like once you get on the construction site, people refer to the spec as much as they do to the drawings. But young people that are drawing stuff, it's the farthest thing from their mind. And I think it's difficult to get young people excited about the spec. But if they realize that, it really does have value. And when they're, you know, fast forward a year from now and you're in the trailer arguing about something, the spec truly is your friend and you need to give it a little bit more attention. You're my favorite person on the <laughs> planet right now. Um, back to the question, where do we repeatedly fail in our industry? What drives you crazy at work? What do we need to fix? So I would say that in my current uh, work life, feels like a bit of a country club environment compared to earlier in my career where I was working for smaller firms in Philadelphia doing uh, public bid work that was sort of like guaranteed to go to the low bidder. And that creates an absolutely disastrous construction environment where the contractor is not in any way financially motivated to do a good job. And it makes the process intolerable and it makes the end results worse. I can understand where the owners, the municipalities are coming from in creating this environment, but it doesn't serve them 
it doesn't serve them well with the end result that they're getting for it. Uh, oh, you are preaching to the, I mean, like I said, over 22 years, and that's not the only public work I've done, but over 22 years of my first, first firm. And I was, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but I'm like, who is the idiot who thought up this process? I totally get it. It's taxpayer money. You have to be responsible. You want to get good numbers, but there's got to be a better way to do it. Because the, I mean, the contractors are forced into a position of looking through all your documents and seeing where they might be able to get yeah. searching for the change orders and then cutting down their number enough to try to get the job, hoping mm -hmm. to make it up in those change orders. And it's, it's dangerous on so many levels. It's one of those things that seems like a good idea if you don't know the process. But as soon as you understand the process, you realize how it really isn't serving anyone well. Okay. So your final question today, if you are king of the world, and you could change or correct anything in our industry. You could just say, from now on, this is how it's going to be, and you have to do it. What would that be? If I had godlike, not just kingly powers, but godlike powers, <laughs> I would make every building have to be net zero. And they wouldn't necessarily look like net zero buildings tend to look like now, but I have godly powers, so I can make that happen. But right. I think that the greatest thing that we could do as an industry is just deal with our energy consumption moving forward. If I only had kingly powers, every architect would, while they were at school, have to spend some period of time building. It's not just the experience of building something, but it's the thought process of building something. And it's understanding what it takes to build something, that the parameters of building something are similar to, but not the same as designing it that tolerance is a real thing. You can draw in Revit so simply an infinitely long line. It's perfectly straight. You can't build that. And it takes an enormous amount of effort to even get close. So that when you talk to a contractor and they're asking for tolerance, they're not doing it because they're being sloppy or lazy. They're doing it because they have a wealth of experience that says in order to get you the result that you want, you're going to need to allow a little bit of space for things to not be perfect. And that is reality. And that really needs to be understood and respected. The flip side of that is that it would be really nice if contractors actually needed to design something so that they could understand where we're coming from, where sometimes we're just being fancy for fanciness sake, but we're dealing with a lot of people, a lot of constituencies to make happy, so many variables. And the process of design is sort of filtering these variables into a single solution, which is extremely complicated. And they're only seeing the end result of that and not the process. And I think that everybody would have a much better understanding of what they were trying to accomplish if you could see both sides of it. Good answer. Now I feel like I have to change my last question because my 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 little motto and one of my hashtags is total world domination. And now I'm feeling like <laughs> feeling like king or queen is not enough that I need to make it. Like if you were master of the universe, I'm changing that. It's going in my master question list right now. I'm writing a note, master of the universe. Tom, thank you so, so much for being here today. Sure thing. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, 
Visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.